Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Teen. Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to draw our attention this morning. A few years ago, I came across a very interesting thing on Facebook. It was called the Karma Experiment. The Karma Experiment. And it rapidly grew to over a million members in 39 countries. And so what the karma experiment tried to do was, basically, here's the philosophy. If enough people around the world do random acts of kindness, the world will be a better place. So here's what they said. It was all about pay it forward. You kind of pay it forward an act of kindness. And so the reason why it was called the karma experiment was because everything was based upon karma. Now, what's karma? Karma is basically cosmic cause and effect. And so here's what karma says. I need to do a lot of good things and I need to stack up a lot of good things. And because if I do a lot of good things, then good things will happen back to me. But if I do a bunch of bad things, I better not do those bad things because if I do a bunch of bad things, bad things will happen to me. So I better pay it forward. I better be kind. I better be nice because I want to stack up good karma. Now, the problem with this karma experiment is it's not that self, selfless after all. It's actually pretty selfish. You kind of do all these things so that you don't have bad karma coming back upon you. And sadly, many Christians operate on this concept of karma. You may not even know that you operate on this concept of karma. It's this, this pervasive mentality in our culture that if I do good things, then good things will happen to me. If I do bad things, then bad things will happen to me. So I better do good things so good things will happen to me. I don't want to do bad things so bad things don't happen to me. But let me ask you a question. What if you do all the good things and something bad happens to you? What happens if you go to church every Sunday and you read your Bible every day and you pay your tithes and your offerings and you help the proverbial old lady across the street and you do all these good things and then something bad happens to you. There are two major types of evil in this world. The first type of evil is what we call moral evil. This is the type of evil where one person perpetrates evil against another person. Genocide, slavery, rape, child abuse, murder. It's moral evil. One person committing evil against another person. That's one type of evil we see in the world. Now there's a second type of evil, not necessarily evil, but maybe bad. And it's like a natural disaster. That's a second type of of bad or evil. Like a tornado, or a tsunami, or a hurricane, or an earthquake that comes in and wipes out a village. It's not necessarily humans inflicting evil on other humans. It's just a product of living in a fallen world where nature takes its course and causes things to happen. And so in our passage of Scripture today, the crowds come and alert Jesus. They give him a newsflash. 
about these two types of evil, a moral evil and a natural disaster. And it's very interesting how Jesus responds. It actually may shock you and surprise you. What he says and what he doesn't say. So let's read this account together in Luke chapter 13. Everybody there? We're going to start in verse 1. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are the house lights all the way up? There. Let there be light, and there was. So here's the first thing that happens in this passage of Scripture. Apparently, there was a group of Galileans. Now, we don't know the exact details. These people come and tell Jesus. But apparently, there was a group of Galileans who probably went up to Jerusalem during Passover. And as they were sacrificing the Passover lambs, they were doing the the Passover sacrifices, some soldiers of Pontius Pilate came and viciously murdered those who were sacrificing for the Passover. And what they did was they mingled the blood of the, of the animals with the blood of the people in the, in, the, in the sanctuary there. Now, this is a great moral evil. Art Lindsay makes this comparison. He says this, It would be as if terrorists came into church and shot worshipers as they were partaking of communion then mingled their blood with the communion wine. So this is a moral evil. Pilate's soldiers come in, murder these people, mingle their blood with the sacrifices. But here's how Jesus' audience is operating. They were operating out of a karma mindset. Did you catch it? How does Jesus respond to them? He says there in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? What's the thought process here? These Galileans must have done something really, really bad to have this happen to them. It's like karma. What goes around comes around. These Galileans who were doing the sacrifices, they must have had some secret sin in their life. They must have something really bad going on in their life because this bad thing would not have happened to them if they were actually good. And and obviously, a lot of the Israelites during that time kind of operated under this karma mentality. Remember Job's friends? They were good friends, weren't they, when Job was suffering? In Job 4-7, They came to him and said, remember, who that was innocent ever perished or were the upright ever caught off? In other words, if you're not a sinner, you're never going to suffer. The innocent never perish. Nothing bad ever happens to the person who's upright. Now, we know by experience that's not true. But it's kind of this karma attitude. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Remember about the man that was blind from birth. 
and his disciples in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This guy's not suffering for some sin, it's just the way things are in a fallen world. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of this karma mentality. And it's very interesting what he says to them. What does he say to them? Verse 3. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now that kind of sounds insensitive, Jesus. That's kind of cold, Jesus. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you expect Jesus to say something like, well, let's stop and pray for the families of those that suffered. We need, to, we need to pray for the families. Or maybe Jesus would have stopped and said, you know, Pilate's a really evil dictator. Pilate's a really evil man. He, he needs to be ousted. Why call them to repentance at such a time as this in the middle of a tragedy, in the middle of this moral evil? Now, these people are riled up. They're excited. They're, they're passionate. This is an evil. This is a moral evil. They're, they're emotionally charged. And so Jesus, I think, taps into that emotional attitude that these people had to basically say, listen, you're all riled up about a moral evil. And that's, there, there's a time and place to address that. But I want you to think about you. I want you to evaluate your own life. I want you to think about your repentance. Do you think these Galileans were worse than the other Galileans? No. But unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Jesus, that's not the answer we expected. Here's a moral evil that's been perpetrated, and you're telling people to repent. What's going on here? Okay, that's the first evil that happens. A moral evil. Now the next is more of a natural disaster, more of a, actually more of a, a building accident, a construction accident. Look what happens next. Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Okay, we don't know a lot of the details about this, but around the wall of Jerusalem, there's, a, there's the pool of Siloam. There was probably a construction project going on where they were constructing a tower. And whether people were up in the tower working on it or there were people down below, 18 people died in this accident. This tower fell down and, and crushed 18 people who were tragically killed. It's kind of like a tornado that whips through a town and kills everybody. Or a fire comes in like the Marshall Fire up in Boulder County and, and consumes homes, but people get killed. Some of you may have heard of the Willow Island Disaster. The Willow Island disaster, it was a collapse of a cooling tower. It was at a power station in West Virginia, and it happened back in 1978. Here's the problem. It was a 166-foot tower, but they did not wait long enough for the concrete to cure, and they went up in that tower the next day. 51 construction workers died. Everyone that went up there, it came toppling down. It's thought to be the deadliest construction accident in U.S. history. And so, again, you may think, well, Jesus is being insensitive here. He's not addressing the, the tower that fell. He's not addressing the victims here. Why is he talking about repentance? And then, to make matters even more perplexing, notice what he says there in verse 4. Did you catch it? If you read carefully, you caught it. 
Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders? Offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. Now, why does Jesus use the term offenders? This word means debtors. What does Jesus assume? Jesus assumes that every single person is guilty before a holy God. Every single person's guilty. There's no quote-unquote innocent person. All persons who've ever lived are offenders because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no quote-unquote innocent person who's ever lived. Everybody's guilty for their sins. And notice what Jesus says again. Verse 5, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Okay, two events, same answer. What's Jesus driving home to his audience? Here's what he's trying to say, or here's what he's saying. When a moral evil happens, or a natural disaster happens, or something catastrophic or bad happens, Yes, it's appropriate to grieve. Yes, it's appropriate to pray. Yes, it's appropriate for our hearts to go out. But Jesus' point is this. When things like this happen, it should cause us to evaluate our lives and say things like, what if that had happened to me? Do I know where I'm going if I were to die? Am I right with God? Where's my eternal destiny? How are things between me and God? The Lord, have I truly repented? You see, when things bad happen, yes, our hearts go out to people, but Jesus is saying one of the first instincts is to evaluate yourself and say, now wait a minute, that could have very easily happened to me. Am I ready to meet my maker? Am I right with the Lord? And so Jesus brings up two very important questions. First question, what does it mean to perish? Second question, what does it mean to repent? Because Jesus says, unless he says it twice, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Okay, let's, let's, let's address perish. What does it mean to perish? Perish does not merely mean that you're just going to die. That's not what the, the original word there in the original language means. The word perish means to suffer in hell. That's what the word perish means. When you see perish in the New Testament, it means to suffer in hell, to suffer the wrath of God, to suffer eternal conscious torment in hell, to, to perish. Remember last week, what was Jesus' point last week in chapter 12? Remember, he tells that parable, settle your accounts quickly with God. Make peace with God before it's too late. Just back up. Back up to what we looked at last week. Verse 57, back in chapter 12. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus' point last week was, you need to settle account with God before it's too late, because if it's too late, you'll be in hell, and there's no way out. And so Jesus is carrying on this theme of if you don't repent, you will perish. You'll be put in the prison cell of hell and you'll never get out. So that's what it means to perish. But let's ask the second question. What does it mean to repent? Jesus says it twice. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The Greek word for repent means to have a change of mind. 
and a change of heart that leads you to an outward confession of faith in Christ. A turning, a 180 degree turning away from sin and toward Christ. Thomas Watson has the best definition. I haven't found one better than Thomas Watson. He's written a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. He says, repentance is a grace of God, spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You're inwardly humbled, but it's visible reformation. People can see it. Listen to Emmanuel's Confession of Faith. How do we define repentance here at Emmanuel? This saving repentance is God's grace, whereby sinners are made sensible of the manifold evils of their sin by the Holy Spirit. By faith in Christ, they humble themselves with godly sorrow, detesting their sin, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with the purpose endeavor by the grace of the Spirit to turn from their sin and walk before God in a manner well-pleasing in all things. Repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. Repentance is one of those confusing things. We, we use the word repent. Repent. Jesus says it here, repent. So what does it mean to repent? Let, let me give you three aspects of repentance. I think this will be helpful to you when you think about the, the, the word that's used in the scriptures, the Greek word for repentance, and then how it's used throughout the Bible. So what are the three main issues revolved in repentance? Well, first, repentance involves a change of mind. That's really what the Greek word means, a change of mind where you actually confess your sins. It's a change of mind. In other words, it, it means you know you've sinned, You have knowledge that you've sinned. Your mind has been changed that you're a sinner, and you actually confess that sin. You've had a mind change. David says in Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It means to acknowledge your sin, to know you've sinned, and to confess that sin. Proverbs 28.13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It means you don't hide your sin. It means you don't excuse your sin. It means that you come to that point where you have knowledge in your head, in your mind, that you have sinned. And your mind changes. The Spirit of God does this work in you. And then you confess that sin. You own up to that sin. You acknowledge that sin. You don't hide that sin. And you're not generic. We become very generic in our confession of sin. Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Well, what particular sins did you commit today? Lord, please forgive me for, and then fill in the blank. We can be very generic with our confession. But no, it's it's a specific confession of known sin sin so first of all it's a change of mind but second repentance involves a change of heart where we're contrite over our sins you have your mind your mind has been opened by the spirit that it actually is sin and you acknowledge that sin but it's also a change of heart you feel sorrow for that sin you feel contrition over that sin you are broken over that sin Listen to what Martin Luther said. In repentance, there must be a deep hurt if the old man is to be put off. When lightning strikes a tree or a man, it does two things at once. 
It rends the tree and swiftly slays the man. But it also turns the face of the dead man and the broken branches of the tree itself toward heaven. It may be painful to be struck by lightning, but where do you end up on your back? And you look up and you're like, oh, okay. I've been thrown to the ground, but I'm looking to heaven for, for forgiveness. It's, it's, a, it's a rending of your heart. Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorrow. I'm sorry for my sin. I feel sorrow for that sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's such a thing as worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I have to deal with the consequences. Godly grief is, I've sinned against my God, and it's breaking my heart. And I don't care about the consequences. I don't care about the fallout. All I care about is my Savior and restoring that relationship with the God I've sinned against. My heart is broken. John Calvin's very helpful here. He says, by godly sorrow... We tremble not only at the punishment for sin, but hate it and abhor the sin because we know it's displeasing to God. You see, when the Holy Spirit does a work of repentance into you, it's like being struck by lightning deep in your heart. It knocks you to the ground. You fall on your back and you look up and your only hope is your Savior. Your heart's been broken. So repentance is a change of mind I know I've sinned, I confess my sin, I own up to my sin, but it's also a change of heart. I'm sorry for my sin, I'm contrite over my sin, it's breaking my heart, and so I want to confess that sin. But there's a third aspect to repentance. Thirdly, repentance involves a change of will, where you actually change your ways. Mind, heart, will. There's actual change. There's actual demonstrable, visible change in your life. It's a 180 degree turning from that sin towards faith in Christ. Joel 2.13 Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Return to the Lord. Make that turn, that 180 degree turn from sin to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from your idols and turning toward faith in Christ. It's turning from sin and turning toward Jesus. And then you serve him and you live for him. Acts 3, 19 through 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. When you repent, there's times of refreshing from the Lord. He heals your heart. He changes you. 
He gives you the grace to walk in newness of life. And we also need to remember that repentance is a lifelong process. Richard Owen Roberts says, true repentance is not a single act, but a continual attitude. It's a lifestyle of repenting. We're always repenting. We're always confessing. We're always owning up to our sin. So the main point of verses 1 through 5 is pretty easy. Repent, or you will likewise perish. When a moral evil or a natural disaster happens, Jesus is saying, yes, these are very tragic things. He doesn't comment upon those. What he's really getting to is your heart, basically making you think to yourself, what if that was me? Am I ready? Am I ready to go to heaven? Have I settled my accounts with the Lord? Have I truly repented? Am I right with God? If not, you will perish, which means you will spend eternity in hell away from the living God. Now, he further illustrates repentance by telling a parable. The parable of the barren fig tree. So let's keep reading. Because this is directly on the heels of talking about repentance, and Jesus illustrates it for us. So let's look at verse 6 and following. He told this parable. Now remember, a parable is a little story. Not necessarily a true story, but Jesus makes up a story to, to prove a point here. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now in the immediate context here, I think Jesus is talking somewhat about the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel was often called God's choice vine, the vineyard of God. God's vineyard. And, and oftentimes when God brought judgment upon Israel in the Old Testament, it was often talking about destroying the vineyard. And so basically Jesus is saying, in, in a sense, contextually here, Israel, you've had all the promises. You've had all of the blessings. You've had the Old Testament. You've got the, the, the types and shadows. You've got the sacrificial system. You have all the blessings of the nation being chosen by God, and you've rejected your Messiah. You're producing no fruit. You're bearing no fruit. You're rejecting your Messiah. I think that's what Jesus is ultimately saying, but let's examine this parable. Fig trees, and I'm not a horticulturist, so I'm not an expert on fig trees, but I can read a commentary that tells me so. Fig trees take a long time to produce fruit. They actually take a long time. Now, in this parable, how long did it take? Three years. That's a long time to wait for something to produce. And so the owner says, listen, we've waited three years for this fig tree to produce fruit. And it's not doing anything. So just cut it down because it's taking up space, it's taking up soil, it could affect the other trees. Let's just cut it down and get rid of it. This thing's a waste. I've waited three years and nothing. Now, what does the vine dresser say? Wait a minute, wait, wait, time out. Let's wait one more year. Here's what I'll do. I'll cut around it. I'll clear out some area. I'll put in some manure. I'll till the soil. I'll take care of it a little bit more, and then let's see after a year if it produces fruit. But don't, don't cut it down right yet. Let's wait. Okay, that's the parable. What does it mean? What does it mean? I think there's two truths that emerge from this parable, and it's related to the importance of repenting and perishing. Here's the first that this parable teaches. God is patient. 
God is patient and gives us many opportunities to repent. The vine dresser in this parable is not ready to give up hope on the vine. He te- that the, the, the owner wants to cut it off because it, it hasn't done anything. And what does the vine dresser say? No, time out. Let's give it some more time. That shows me that God is patient in giving you opportunities to repent. Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is showing people kindness and patience by giving them many opportunities to repent before he cuts them off. He's giving them time. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. But there is a limit to God's patience. And we don't know when that is. But there is a time where God says, I've given you enough time, and time's up. Now, I don't know the sovereignty of God and how that works with each person. I don't know how that all works with his second coming. But I do know that God is being patient with you. And the point is this. Repent now and don't wait. If God is being patient with you, if God is showing kindness to you, that's not an excuse for you to abuse that that kindness or abuse that patience and do whatever you want. It's it's to point you to say, wow, God's been patient with me. I better repent now before it's too late because there could come an end to his patience. And how does God do that in your life? Like the vine dresser who said, wait a minute, I'll till up the soil. I'll put some manure in. I'll work things around so it can grow some fruit. Let me ask you a question. If God is birthing repentance in your heart, could or would God till up the soil of your heart with difficulties to get you there? You betcha. God may be doing a work of grace in your heart to bring you to repentance, and that work of grace may be painful because he's pruning and he's tilling and he's working in you. I like what John Bunyan said. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, this is not from the Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote this. He says, Thus I say the Lord Jesus oftentimes deals with barren sinners. He digs about him. He smites a blow at his heart, another blow at his lust, a third at his pleasures, a fourth at his comforts, another at his self-conceitedness. Thus he digs about him. Baron Frigtree, see here the care, the love, the labor, and the way which the Lord Jesus the vine dresser is working in you and is happily making you to be fruitful. God may smite, God may blow, God may take those deep sins in your heart and root them out, but he's doing that as an act of kindness to lead you to repentance. Now here's the second observation from the parable. It's an open-ended question about whether the fig fig tree produced fruit. Do you get the answer? It's open-ended, right? Let's give it a year and see if it bears fruit. If it doesn't, we'll cut it down. Do we get the end of the story? You will never know. Did it bear fruit? Did it not bear fruit? Jesus purposely leaves it open-ended 
as a way to force you and me as listening to this parable to think, now wait a minute, what is the end to this fruit tree? Could, I, could, I, could, could this fruit tree be me? It makes us evaluate ourselves, just like those two events happened with Pilate and the mingling of the blood and the Tower of Siloam and, and the fig tree. It's all leading to ask the question to ourselves. Remember what John Baptist said earlier in Luke, Luke 3, 8? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you have repented, there will be be fruit. Repentance is more than just being sorry. It's more than just confessing. It involves an actual life change. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He gave this warning. There are many in every congregation who hear the gospel who are literally hanging over the brink of the pit of hell. They've lived for years in the best part of God's vineyard and yet borne no fruit. They've heard the gospel preached faithfully for hundreds of Sundays and yet never embraced it, taken up their cross, and followed Christ. And he says this, Never let us forget that to be content with sitting in the congregation and hearing sermons while we bear no fruit in our lives, is conduct which is most offensive to God. So what does fruit look like? What does the fruit of repentance look like? Repent or you will likewise perish. This parable of the barren fig tree that's supposed to produce fruit. What is the fruit? I need to be very careful here. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever quantify, measurable, how much fruit you need to have? We need to be very careful because we can put guilt trips on each other and say, you don't have the fruit that I think you should have based upon my standard of your fruit bearing. You haven't done enough quiet times is the way I've done it. You haven't gone to church enough. You haven't served in the nursery enough. You haven't given enough of your time. You haven't gone on enough mission trips. So therefore, you have not produced enough fruit. <clears throat> Show me the verse where it says, Thou shalt go on X amount of mission trips to prove that you're really a disciple. I think that's in 2 Hezekiah. <clears throat> Some of you are laughing, which is good, because that's not a book in the Bible. There are some general teachings on bearing fruit. Jesus, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, if you abide in him, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from that, how much is much? There's no quantifier. There's no measurable. It just says you'll bear much fruit. If you abide in Jesus, you'll bear fruit because he'll produce that fruit in your life. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Okay, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Again, there's a list there, but it doesn't say how much of each you're supposed to have. The promise is, is that the Holy Spirit produces these in your life, and if you're truly a Christian, you will bear much fruit. But again, we can't measure it. We can't quantify it. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. 
And so from the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking, okay, what's your prayer, Paul? Here's his prayer. Asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now Paul here says, bearing fruit in every good work. And he does, again, he doesn't give a measurable quantity, but he does give some examples. Good works, growing in Christ, growing in patience, growing in thankfulness, endurance, Here's the point. Repentance will bring forth fruit. God will bear the fruit in your life, and there will be fruit. How much? And to what degree? And how we compare ourselves to others? The Bible says very little. Now, with that being said, let me say this. If there is no demonstrable fruit in your life at all, like after three years, there's nothing. I'm not saying three years, but I'm just saying based upon the parable. If you claim to be a Christian, there's nothing there. You may need to ask the very hard question, have I truly repented? Am I truly saved? Because if you are truly saved, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what's Jesus' bottom line here? Repent. And repent quickly. God is patient. God gives you a second chance. But there may come a time when it's too late. Unless you likewise perish. I mean, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Repent. Repent now. And bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's Jesus' point. What's the, what's, the, what's the outcome? What's the consequence if you don't repent? You'll perish. And again, that means to suffer God's wrath and hell. I want you to think about it this way. Would those Galileans go to the temple and offer sacrifices if they knew they would get killed that day? No. They had a little crystal ball and said, this is going to happen, that they're not going to show up. Would those that were at the Tower of Siloam, would they have gone and worked on that or been around that if they knew that day that tower was going to fall on them? No, they wouldn't have gone. They would not have gone if they knew beforehand. And tragically and sadly, they were a product of a evil, moral, a moral disaster, an evil, a moral evil and a natural disaster. But let's talk about you. You and I are not in the dark. We know there's a day of judgment. We know there's a final day when it's going to be too late. We know that if you don't repent, you'll perish. So what has God done to you and to me? God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we would avoid perishing. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not, what? Perish. And again, that doesn't mean you're just going to die. Literally, what it means is if you trust in Christ alone for salvation, you will escape hell and have eternal life in heaven. 
Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way. It's a change of way. Repentance is changing your ways. It's it's changing your lifestyle. Let the unrighteous man change his thoughts. Repentance is a change of thought. Let him return to the Lord. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord. And here's the promise. When you repent, what do you find in your Lord? The Lord may have compassion. And he will abundantly pardon. Repentance is not meant to scare you. Yes, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But let me just say this. The flip side of that is, if you repent, you will find Jesus' arms wide open. And he will receive you. And he will love you. And he will accept you. And he will abundantly pardon you forever. So I'd be like Jesus. What are you waiting for? If you haven't repented, do it now. Do it quickly. Or you will likewise perish. Let's bow our heads and pray this morning. Thankful that you are a God of compassion. You are a God of mercy. You are a God that will abundantly pardon. And all throughout the scriptures we're called to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn toward you. And Lord, there may be some in this room today that have never done that for the very first time. They know for their entire lives up to this point they've been living in sin, they've been living for themselves, they've been living in selfishness, and they've never turned from that, they never confessed it, they never felt that deep in in their heart, that, that hatred, that anguish over their sin. Lord, would today be the day that you grant them repentance and they turn? For the very first time, Lord, would you save those in this room that have never repented and trusted in you? But Lord, we also know repentance is a lifetime. It's an ongoing attitude. And so for those of us who are believers, Lord, help us to have that ongoing attitude of repentance. To keep short accounts with you, Lord. To to quickly confess our sin. To be grieved over our sin. And help us to always remember the gospel promise that you abundantly pardon. That you forgive. We thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you for that love. We thank you for that mercy. Lord, help us remember that your kindness and your patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Not to continue in sin, but to run to you. As we sang earlier, run to the Father. May we in our hearts at this time Run to the loving embrace of the Father and find his arms open wide all because he sent his son Jesus so that no one would perish but have eternal life if we believe. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We want to leave here amazed by your love for sinners. Grant us that repentance to turn from sin and trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.